is what I think is a pretty interesting story. There's a man named Charles Blondin. He was French, so I'm not going to use my French accent. But Charles Blondin, I'm just going to call him Blondin, um, was a tightrope walker. So what's interesting is he was born, you know, in probably the 1820s in France. And uh, when he was a five-year-old boy, his parents sent him to the Circus School of Lyon, all right? And what they said was he just was dying to be a circus performer because he had, they had taken him to the circus. And so they sent him off to the Circus School of Lyon. I would love to talk to his parents and hear the backstory behind all of that. I bet it was very interesting. Anyway, so he very quickly became this amazing little, you know, daredevil tightrope walker. And he traveled around the world walking across tightropes and doing all these sort of amazing feats. And uh, just to go ahead and sort of give you the end of the story, he died as a 78-year-old, right? And so he, he made it. He, li- he lived. Well, one of the things that he did was pretty tremendous is, I think it was in 1858, he came over to America in order to walk across a tightrope that was stretched across uh, Niagara Falls. Now, he got there in the wintertime, decided maybe it was better to wait for some good weather. I don't know how many of you have ever been around Buffalo, New York before, or Niagara, but that's not the right time to be walking across Niagara Falls. And, uh, and so he decided to wait until uh, the summer of 1859. And so what was interesting is they, they, they had to figure out how to get 1,300 feet of two-inch hemp rope across Niagara Falls. And so that was sort of a feat in and of itself. They built towers on either side of uh, the river Niagara Falls, and then they stretched this rope across, and again, it was a 1,300-foot expanse, and it was like 160 feet over the falls, so it's just amazing, right, right there as the water goes over, right above where the maid in the mist is the little boat that would sail around beneath. And so in the spring of 1859, they began publishing in New York and other big cities that Charles Blondin was going to walk across uh, the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And so, of course, everyone uh, was sort of buzzing about it. The newspapers were covering it. There was all this big stuff. And so, sure enough, the date came for his first performance, and 25,000 people came on buses and tra- not buses, but trains to that area of Niagara Falls. They lined the river, and he began to make his way across this tightrope, across Niagara Falls, carrying a 25-foot ash pole. It took him seven, uh, 17 minutes to make his way from the American side to the Canadian side. He stopped, rested, had a snack, and then went back to the other side. And he said, hey, I'm going to do it again tomorrow. If you want to come back again, I'm going to do more. And so the next day, more people showed up. Over the course of the next several years, he did feet after feet after feet across on the high wire across Niagara Falls. He took a, a, a little stove with him, and he cooked an omelet, and he put it on a plate, and he ate it, sitting in the very middle of Niagara Falls. He, uh, the maid in the mist came beneath him, and he lowered a line down, and they hooked a, a bottle of wine to it, and he pulled the bottle of wine up, and he popped the cork while sitting on the tightrope and poured himself a glass of wine and drank it. He pushed a wheelbarrow back and forth. He did headstands and handstands. He hung from this rope by one hand. I mean, just feet after feet after feet. What they realized was eventually that if they didn't do, you know, more and more risky things, that people would quit showing up. And so uh, his uh, manager, a man named Harry uh, uh, Colcord, basically said, we're going to have to do something bigger. And so he said, next time that you are going to walk across, I think you ought to, to ask the crowd if anyone from the crowd would be willing to ride on your back across this tight wire, across Niagara Falls. And so Blondin said, that's great, I'll do it. And so the next, you know, they published this in the papers and they made big news of it all. Again, you know, thousands and thousands of people came out to watch as he performed this. And uh, before he invited anyone to ride across his back, 
He walked across one way and did some feats that were amazing, and then he walked back the other way and did some other things. And when he came back to the American side where the biggest crowd was, he said, hey, does anybody believe that I can walk across this tightrope carrying a man on my back? And everybody's like, yeah. You know, they just cheered, you do it. And, uh, and then he said, all right, let me have a volunteer. Silence. <laughs> Nobody, right? People kind of looking down, checking their phones, twiddling their thumbs, you know, don't look at me. And he asked again, he's like, do you believe that I can do this? And this time the cheer was a little bit less, but people were like, yeah, yeah. And, and he said, all right, how about a volunteer? Nothing. And then finally his manager, Harry Colcord, raised his hand. And he walked out and he climbed onto Charles Blondin's back. And they walked from one side of Niagara Falls to the other and back again. Amazing story, right? And what's part of, partly amazing about this story is just it's amazing in and of itself. It's probably an interesting glimpse into French culture as well. Fabrice is not here this morning. He could help us with that. But more than anything, what we see here is sort of the, the nature of belief and the nature of doubt, right? So here in Mark chapter 9 this morning, we're actually going to be reading a passage that deals with these very things. Jesus is dealing with a similar issue of doubt and belief and, and even desperation, right? I mean, because there was a sense in which in order to, cl- you know, to climb on someone's back and to walk across this tightrope, there had to be some level of desperation by Harry Colcord, knowing that like, if we don't raise the bar here, this whole thing might sort of go down the tubes. But here in the story of Mark chapter 9, the, uh, the story of belief and doubt and desperation is that there's this man who has a son, and his son has been demon-possessed since he was a small boy. And the man brings his son to Jesus' disciples, and, uh, and they can't cast out the demon. And so then Jesus comes, and, and Jesus asks the father if he believes. And the father responds in his desperation with this great quote, maybe some of you have heard it before, where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Let's jump in, starting at verse 14 of Mark chapter 9. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd gathered around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Now, just to sort of set the stage a little bit, Jesus, Peter, James, and John had been up on Mount Hermon, right? So this is very north of Israel. And they went up on Mount Hermon, and as they were up there, God descended and he spoke to Jesus face to face. He strengthened Jesus, probably for the reason that Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, but also part of what God did in that moment as he spoke in a way that Peter, James, and John could hear him, and God spoke about his son, he said this. He said, ultimately, he said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so Peter, James, and John come down the mountain after having sort of been in the presence of God and seeing Jesus glorified and hearing God say, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. They're probably on this spiritual high, and they come down the mountainside with Jesus only to find this argument brewing at the foot of Mount Hermon. And it's the nine disciples who didn't go up. And it's these people called the teachers of the law or scribes. Their job was to copy the Old Testament over and over and over again and get it right. They also would write uh, commentaries and they would teach. And so they were really kind of popular and powerful. Jesus, however, was kind of butting heads with them all the time because they cared more about the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. Jesus, in fact, called them actors. He said, you guys are just actors or hypocrites in uh, Greek because their external life didn't match up with their internal life, and they were involved in this argument, this crowd, this man who we're going to meet in a minute, 
and the disciples. Looking at verse 15. As soon as all the people saw Jesus coming down the mountain, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him, right? They knew that he'd been performing miracles. They had an idea of who he was. You can just imagine the nine disciples who had been embroiled in this argument. They were probably like, thank goodness Jesus is here. And so they run over to where Jesus is, this crowd. What are you arguing with them about? He asked, that is Jesus. So Jesus presumably is asking the nine, the disciples. A man in the crowd, however, answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth. He becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So this crowd runs up to Jesus. Jesus asks the nine, what's going on? And the father of the demon-possessed boy interrupts, right? In his desperation, he, he doesn't even let the disciples answer. He answers somewhat rudely, and he says, teacher, right? Teacher, I brought you my son. I brought you my son. He's almost blaming Jesus. I brought you my son. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not, right? He's desperate. He's a little bit rude. He's probably angry, right? He, the father is desperate for something, for healing for his son, and clearly doesn't even know who Jesus is because he calls him teacher. And this is right after Jesus just came down the mountain where the disciples heard that God declared that this is my son. It's not just a teacher, it's my son. Jesus answers this way, verse 19, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, in a minute, we'll talk about who we think Jesus was rebuking here. But let's look at verse 20. So they brought him, that is the boy. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, that is the father answered. Now literally the Greek there says not from childhood, but it says since he was Since he was a little boy, right? It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And so this man, again, he's just desperate that that Jesus would heal his son, right? And he, and he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, and Jesus responds in verse 23 by saying, if you can. If you can, said Jesus. And then he says, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed again. The Greek here doesn't say exclaimed, it says crying with tears, right? Crying with tears, I do believe Help me overcome my unbelief. Great, great statement. I do believe. Help me come overcome my unbelief. Like, you know, desperate people do not have the energy to pretend anymore. They're just honest, right? Just honest, right? When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, so you've already got the nine disciples, you've already got the, you know, the scribes, you've already got the other people listening, and you've already got the son. But more people are coming to sort of see what's going on. 
So when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Something tells me that Jesus just didn't say that, probably shouted that. Jesus rebukes the demon. It's the same word used to describe when Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves during the storm on the sea of Galilee. With authority and power, Jesus shouts above the wind and the waves and above the convulsions of the boy and the cacophony of the crowd, and he commands the Spirit to leave him alone. And don't ever come back. Don't ever come back. It says this, verse 26, the spirit shrieked, convulsed him, this boy, violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. And so at Jesus' shout and the shriek of the demon-possessed boy, a hush falls over the crowd as they look upon the body of the boy laying motionless at the feet of his father, right? You just kind of picture the horror of that scene. But, it says in verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he, that is the boy, stood up. Again, in the Greek, the word there is he arose, right? He arose. That's this amazing story. And as we look at this, man, we could focus on any number of different things. We could, we could focus on the fact that Jesus is God's son, right? In contrast to the father, the desperate, well-intentioned father calling Jesus teacher, right? God just declared, this is my son, right? This is the Messiah. This is God the son. We could talk about Jesus' power. We could talk about the father saying, if you can do anything, I'd really appreciate it. And Jesus going, do you know who I am? am. We could focus on prayer. We could focus on pride. There's all these things we could focus on this morning. And those are all be totally legitimate things, but I want to focus on just one thing. And the one thing I want to focus on is this, that Jesus is gracious to us. Jesus is gracious to the Father in his desperation and in his doubt, right? Jesus is gracious to us in our desperation And our doubt, bring the boy to me. You see, Jesus rebuked the disciples. We can't get into this now. But part of the reason they couldn't cast out the demon was because I think they were trusting in their own ability rather than in God's ability. And so Jesus rebukes them, I think. Jesus rebukes the scribes. They're always sort of battling back and forth. And of course, you know, they are really afraid that Jesus is taking away their power and their influence with the people, and so he rebukes them. He probably rebukes the crowds. They're more interested in sort of seeing signs and wonders and all this amazing stuff. Jesus even rebukes the demon, right? But Jesus welcomes the Father in his desperation and doubt. Jesus welcomes the Father in his desperation and doubt. The Father was a little rude in his desperation. Jesus asked the nine disciples, what's going on here? The man interrupts, right? He didn't even really know who Jesus was. Teacher, right? He calls him teacher, not God the Son, not the Messiah. And then not only that, but he questions Jesus' power. If you can, right, 
The man was then honest about the state of his heart. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I mean, he's not pretending at all, right? And not only that, in the father's desperation, he just lost that ability. He had an audience with the one person in the world who could heal his son, and he got just about everything wrong. And Jesus is gracious to him. Bring the boy to me, right? Jesus rebukes everybody but the one who's desperate, the one who's doubting, the one who's honest about where they really are. And some of you this morning, more than anything, need to hear that God is gracious to you in your desperation, right? It can be desperation about school. It can be desperation about immorality. It can be desperation about your parents' situation. It can be desperation about losing someone that you love. You can be desperate and worn completely thin, and Jesus says, come to me, come to me, bring your desperation to me. I can handle it, right? I can handle that. Not only that, but some of you this morning need to hear that God is gracious to you even in your doubts, right? Even in your very weak or imperfect faith in him. How much faith is enough? Apparently, just a little, right? Apparently, very flawed faith is enough, Bring your doubts to me. Bring your desperation to me. There's one thing I want you to see this morning about Jesus and about God is that the one thing he wants is for us to come to him in all of our doubt, in all of our desperation, honestly, right? If you think you've got it all together, you don't. If you think your theology is perfect, it's not. If you think you've got God wrapped up somehow, you don't. If, however, you come to God humbly admitting I'm desperate, I'm broken, and sometimes I believe in you, and sometimes I struggle to believe in you, and sometimes I think Jesus is enough, but usually I think he's not, but I believe, help my unbelief, then God says, come to me. You're just where I want you. Now this morning, as you look around the room, there are tables with bread and wine on this side of the room. There are tables with bread and grape juice on that side of the room. And this is a meal that we call the Lord's Supper. Some of you grew up calling it communion. Other people grew up calling it different things. But essentially, it's got its roots in the Old Testament. Uh, the Israelites were in slavery and bondage in Egypt. And, uh, and God heard them in their desperation, right? He heard their cries. They were saying, does God even care about us anymore? And God came down. And he said, take a perfect lamb and kill this lamb and put the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of your home then eat that lamb. And when the angel of death passes over, the angel of death will pass over you too. In other words, you don't have to fear the punishment. You don't have to fear the wrath. Well, fast forward to to when Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples, and he says, I've longed to eat this Passover meal with you. But then he does something amazing, and he essentially says this, I'm the new Passover lamb. If you eat my body and drink my blood, then you don't have to fear anymore, right? You're safe, right? And so some of you in this room this morning are desperate because you know your record doesn't hold up. You know you're not good enough. You know you've been too bad. And what God comes to say in this meal of the Passover is to say that what you need is not a perfect record. What you need is the perfect record of my son Jesus, right? What you need isn't to sacrifice more. What you need is the sacrifice of my son Jesus on your behalf. Because what this meal we call the Lord's Supper declares is that when you trust in Christ, when you have faith in his work, his life, his death, 
and his resurrection, then God looks at you and he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' record. He sees Jesus' life. He sees Jesus' uh, death. And out of that, but all of a sudden, instead of imperfection, he sees perfection, right? And so that's the promise of this meal is that it's safe for you to come. Now, I'm going to read the, the Lord's Supper, the words of institution for the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to invite you to take your time to think about that declaration of safety, to, to think about that declaration of innocence over you and your story and your history. And then when you're ready, I'm going to ask that you get up, walk to one of these stations, that you tear off a piece of bread and that you dip it in the wine or in the grape juice, and in doing so, you viscerally are reminded by Jesus that he has done enough and that you're imperfect faith and your desperation is all that's required. Hear the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, I thank you for this very true message that what we need is to acknowledge our need. Uh, Father, I thank you for this message um, that you welcome us in our desperation. Father, when we finally uh, quit pretending, then it's the perfect time to come to you, Father. Father, when we admit that our belief in you is flawed, that it's the perfect time to come to you. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would empower these people in this room this morning to to take you at your word, Father, that your word of not guilty, that your word of beautiful, that your word of I love you, that that word would be louder than their doubts and more powerful than their desperation. And I pray, Father, that you would lead them to this table to receive um, the gift uh, that you have offered us in your son, Jesus. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen.